So when I walk out the door, there is this array of plants just around me that I can access, you know, whether it be for infusions or whether it might be, you know, for, for skin or hair. There is just all there, just around us at a hand's reach. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Tanil Christensen from Earth Mama, where I teach people to get skilled in sustainability. This is the permaculture herbalism segment brought to you by the Elder Tree, where we are putting the medicine in the hands of people. Thank you for tuning in. I'm recording from my studio in Jabakai land of Karanda, Australia. And I'm going to give my respects today and always to the First Nations people, past, present and future, and offer my gratitude for the opportunities to learn their ancient wisdom in our modern world, bridging time and culture so we may all thrive. This segment is all about merging the world of permaculture and herbalism. So the art and science of ecological design and plant wisdom or plant medicine so that we can cultivate healthy landscapes and people. If you want to be involved, you can be part of the Elder Tree Trove, which is our Patreon community. Stay tuned to this episode for more information and without further ado, let's get into the interview. If we would open our ears, what would we Maura Gamble is a global award-winning permaculture educator, speaker, gardener, podcaster, humanitarian, and the founder of the Permaculture Education Institute. She's also the creator of Our Permaculture Life blog, which you may have seen on her YouTube channel. It's been viewed over 6 million times. She teaches permaculture to teachers on six continents, and it's through her in-depth online course, the Permaculture Educators Programme. Alongside that, she offers the incredible edible garden for budding permaculture gardeners. You can join her monthly for free film screenings and masterclasses. Morag joined me today from Gubby Gubby Country in Mullaney, where she lives at Crystal Waters Eco Village and where she homeschools her children. Welcome, Morag. I'm so excited for our interview today. Thank you for joining me. And let's jump into the very first question. I'd love for all of our uh, listeners here to really understand why permaculture is an important aspect of your life. Hi, Danielle. Thanks for having me. I can't remember a moment in my life, actually, where permaculture wasn't an important part of it. I grew up in a household where permaculture was kind of put forward as something that if you're going to do anything that makes good common sense, then permaculture is it. Uh, My dad had heard, I think it was Bill Mollison on ABC radio right back when he was first talking about permaculture. And, and he was so taken with it as something that just really was about, you know, healing the planet. It was about caring for people. It was about, Uh, growing local food, being sustainable. And that really appealed to my dad. And uh, so I kind of grew up with that essence around me, which was really, really wonderful. Uh, And so now my life is just full 
of permaculture in all different ways, from homeschooling my kids to I live in a permaculture eco village, a designed uh, an eco village designed using the principles of permaculture. I'm looking out here at the moment. I'm surrounded by a permaculture food forest, and uh, and my work is entirely around teaching permaculture teachers. And so I I really value permaculture as a way that helps us to put on a lens, basically, of looking at the world. It's a way of looking at the world and thinking, how can I be a contributor to the kind of world that I'd like to see come forward? How can I be part of making a positive and practical difference in the world? How can I nourish myself and my family within that too and nourish the soils and looking at that whole system? So for me, permaculture offers a really simple, accessible and beautiful platform for us to be able to address both our local and global needs simultaneously in a very gentle way. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And recently I picked up this book called Permaculture Pioneers and I read all about you and I thought, wow, you know, there's often a lot of um, talk about David Holgram and Bill Mollison and we're so grateful for them but I didn't realize until you know like I've been on to Northy Street Farms and I've um, in my earlier permaculture days read these um, amazing resources about um, a, a guide to starting permaculture community gardens and and it's like oh this is all leading back to Morag and um you have this really inspiring YouTube channel about your permaculture life and the videos. Oh, I just haven't even watched them all. It's like, wow, there is just years of resources here. Um, so I've been really inspired and, and I just think, and you teach and in my journey, I've done the, the designing, the training, and I've also consulted, but I've got to this stage where I feel really passionate about teaching. And the more I've looked into what you're doing, you're really leading that way. You have this double whammy permaculture design certificate and a teacher training online, self-paced, which is awesome. And I do a permaculture nature kids program, but you've got this ongoing perma youth program as well. And this ethos foundation that's helping East Africa. So hopefully when we go through this interview, if you can share aspects of of what you're doing in your life and because I've just touched on it there but I'm sure there's so much more information that our listeners would be hungry for based on what I just dropped then well like I said I've been doing it for a lifetime so this is this is all I do permaculture infuses its way through all of my work and and uh yeah my main focus now as you said is is the permaculture educators program teaching permaculture teachers because I'm really passionate about this, you know, I, I'm passionate about the planet. I'm about mm. life. I love life. I love, I love humanity. I love all the species that we coexist with. And I feel that my main contribution that I can make is to actually share a permaculture lens, which enables us to, to be able to, to live more gently wherever we are. And so, so permaculture teaching, I feel, is my main um, way that I can make a contribution while I still also and, and permaculture teaching looks so many different things it can be teaching of courses which I do but it's also 
um, sharing through videos, sharing through podcasts like this. And and I, I also have a podcast called Sense Making in a Changing World, which is talking with people around the world about their vision about how permaculture can um, contribute to making sense of what's going on and finding solutions forward. Uh, and and then just you know, working with local communities around the world and particularly one area that I've really dedicated to um, connecting up the global permaculture community is with supporting the young people in refugee communities because they're in the forefront of the impact of climate change. They're getting impacted indirectly but profoundly by the current wars that are going on because of the lack of access to food and the redistribution of resources. And so it's kind of like this invisible group of people that is a growing number of people who are displaced in the world. It's not that our world, we don't see the impact of it, but our lives and our lifestyles and the choices and decisions that we make and our countries make and, and the the most developed worlds, the countries in the world make are directly impacting. So how can we implement the permaculture fair share ethic and really pay attention to how we can be supporting? So what that looks like is basically I have this charity called the Ethos Foundation and anyone in the world uh, who's who wants to can put money into that and I will send it directly 100% to a young perma-youth leader in an East African camp who we have a direct relationship with who are running programs that are setting up demonstration gardens, um, perma-kids classes, uh women's classes, classes for local farmers, setting up music studios to sing permaculture songs and also even dressing things like period poverty. And uh, so a lot of the young women don't get access to school while their period is on because they can't go to school unless they've got access to to pads. And so uh, Mm. supporting washable sanitary pad making in the local communities and, uh, and that then also helps to reduce the plastic waste and also the cost and all these other things and that is a project so and then what we do too is that anyone from the refugee community who would like to join in on any of our online programs because they're accessible are more than welcome to so we get to have build a relationship that way and uh, people who are sponsoring get to meet them and talk and so we have this broader sense of what's happening in the world and understand that what we're doing in our permaculture world's is benefiting us in our own backyards and our own families, but can also simultaneously be supporting some of the most vulnerable communities in the world. And I feel like we have privilege Mm -hmm. in Australia and what can we do with this privilege that can really make a significant difference and direct difference and build a relationship so that we have a greater level of understanding, not just what we hear in the news, but actually hearing direct from people on the ground of what's going on. Yeah, I love that. And that really demonstrates that principle of working where it counts the most. You know, you're going into these marginal places and, you know, where it's it matters the most. You know, we are so privileged and it's so easy and we have the convenience of everything. We're such a small portion, really, when you look at the larger scheme of population and what's happening. And, and yeah. also if you think about it too, that um, in, a, in a camp like that, they probably get about $3 a month, if they're lucky, to spend on food. Uh, that's what they get from the UNHCR. And I, I'd always thought, oh, my gosh, you know, well, you know, we have this UNHCR and that's supporting people who are refugees. It's like 
yes, but <laughs> not really. Mm. And uh, so, and that money gets spent on basically some kind of imported, probably GMO maize meal. That's the worst quality kind of yeah, food. And secondly, um, some kind of bean, uh, no fresh food. Mm-hmm. no medicines no herbs no anything and so really part of this program that we've been supporting is really helping the communities there to create and adapt permaculture in a way that makes sense but creating localized food gardens kitchen gardens right up close to wherever they're living or in a school ground or around a community center where they can access really good quality highly nutritious food that can support them as their young growing bodies or for young mothers or for breastfeeding mothers so that they have nutrients mm. <laughs> that are actually nourishing their bodies, nourishing their minds and giving them the capacity to heal through through better food. You know, the, the access to that is just not there mm. without these kind of programs. And so I think it's, it's incredibly important and particularly, you know, when you're talking about um, the kind of things that you talk about on, on, on this show, it's like, uh, you know, how, how do you create a healing garden? How do you create those in places that are devastated? And um, this is kind of the best way that, that I've been able to find to contribute to that in, in some way possible. And it doesn't take very much money. You know, I don't send secondhand stuff over. I just send money. And then they can get local seeds, local tools, local resources, and make it happen right there. And uh, we get fi- we get feedback by them coming and telling us the stories. I'll send in photographs or send in little videos of what's going on, and that's it. It's as simple as that. There's no massive reporting or admin. Everything is just very much person to person, and mostly woman to woman. <laughs> you know, to be honest, that's kind of where it mostly is. Yeah, having conversations, building those relationships with the women. Yeah, Yeah. wow, that's so beautiful. So maybe we'll take that into that conversation of herbalism and permaculture. So do you integrate plants specifically from like a healing perspective in either your home, garden and community? Oh, look, I my garden is just full of a diversity of plants. It's, It's one big beautiful forage garden. And that's, that's, that's plants that are healing for me, plants that are healing for my kids, plants that are great for my other beings, which are part of my system, say, for example, the chickens. So all throughout, um, those plants are woven. But particularly, I have an area that's right just outside my front veranda. So when I walk out the door, there is this array of plants just around me that I can access you know, whether it be for infusions or whether it might be, you know, for for skin or hair or when my son goes to the beach and gets sunburnt <laughs> like he did the other day, uh, you know, like um, there there is just all there just around us at a hand's reach and that the kids, because they've grown up in and amongst that, just know that they're there for them to access as well. So they'll go and self-medicate too, which is really wonderful. Yeah, just an extension of your lifestyle. You're walking past it constantly. And so I'm guessing yeah. aloe vera was there for the sunburn. But what other herbs? Use for your skin and these kind yeah. of things. What's in that little beautiful garden that you've got? Or maybe well, we have uh, just that little right little section there. Right above is a lemon myrtle 
tree. So with the lemon myrtle, I'm constantly um, plucking the leaves. I actually keep that lemon myrtle tree quite low because it's actually in the midst of the herb garden and the sort of the vegetable forage area. So I can't let it get full size. And besides, if I let it get full size, it would, well, one, it would create too much shade and the roots would be too big, but also the best leaves would be way up there. So I keep it down nice and low so I get lots of young, fresh, yummy leaves off it. So there's the lemon myrtle, which I use a lot of. Um, then underneath that, there are things like there's yarrows and aloe vera and pineapple sages and and then, you know, um, lemon balm. There's all these things that are growing in and around underneath that plant. Um, and then further up the path, there's, you know, there's comfrey and there's turmeric and, um, yeah, all those kind of things that are just that around. But, you know, just going back to the aloe, I... I have um, kind of wild curly hair <laughs> and one of the things I found really helpful is is just going out and after I've had a shower is just going out and grabbing a leaf of the aloe vera, opening it up and just putting it, combing it through as a leave-in conditioner in my hair. And I, and then, you know, so I don't need the, I just, you know, go out, get a leaf and then toss it back in the garden as, as compost. And so it's part of my way of, you know, Years ago when my daughter and I, we, we did this Plastic Free July challenge together and we were trying to say, okay, let's go into the shops and see what we can buy that doesn't get wrapped in plastic and what, what are the things that you just can't get. And so as part of her homeschooling challenge, and, you know, one of the things we kept coming around to was like, oh, gosh, well, it's, you know, shampoos and conditioners and all these different things. And so, you know, together with her, we did this, um, research on what it was that she could use and uh, so so she still continues to use she's moved out of home now already and she still talks about how she you know she accesses a little pot of of aloe vera near her so um so aloe vera is and then you know before I toss it out into the compost you know put a bit on my arms and on my face and then you know it's such a great plant to have as an external ex- external plant for all different things and I and I didn't even have to mention to my 15-year-old son. I, you know, I remember when he was little, I'd try and put it on and go, ew, it's too goofy. <laughs> anyway, I came back from, uh, I was out and he he must have got home before me from the beach with his friend. And, and yeah, there was all these aloe vera strips on the bench. <laughs> I thought, I know what's going on here. <laughs> Learn well yeah. it does come through just by you leading by example isn't it you just have it in your life and they just learn without you having to really teach them and I think that's a really interesting thing isn't it when you create a context mm. within which learning happens you need to do less teaching about stuff and it just becomes lifing and uh and I was talking about that with my son the other day actually about uh looking after chickens and he says oh I don't the chickens although he does you know but I don't want to look after the chicks I said yeah but you eat their eggs every day and he says yeah but well you know yeah and I said I think it's one of those really useful life skills you never know like when you move out of home or sometime if you you know this might be one of those things that you really value knowing how to do that and he went oh yeah you're right <laughs> off he went up and did you know looked after the chickens and I it just it's just around you. So, you know, that. but I love the thing about knowing that they know which plants to reach for yeah. in the garden. And, you know, even my little 10-year-old will know 
what all the plants are called and what they're good for and, and what he can reach for. And we'll, if we have groups of people coming over, he'll walk out and he'll start telling people what's there. You know, I have to say, though, you know, if I start to ask him to eat too many greens, he will get rather upset, but he knows what they all are and what they're good for. <laughs> I can totally relate. <laughs> the way that I hear my children talk, well, even what's reported back from her school, from homeschooling and different things, groups where they go into the garden, it's like Nova's got all this information. I'm like, she doesn't say these things at home with me, <laughs> but it does filter through. It does, yeah. And I think that's that's wonderful. But, yeah, I just like also to have such a variety of things in the garden that are, are good for good for for all sorts of drinks you know lots of infusions and I'm constantly grabbing handfuls of of different plants um, you know like I mentioned the lemon myrtle that's one of my favorite one actually one of the things I love to do with that is just as I'm going out it's right on my pathway as I'm going out so I just grab a handful of them stick them in my pocket and then while I'm out and about during the day I can just smell them it's such an uplifting smell and I think you know there's a lot to be said about plants and um, that it's not just about ingesting them. It's actually this whole sense that comes from being surrounded by these plants, by the visually what they look like, what they smell like when you're going past, the you know the aromatic oils that are just wafting out of your pocket and and filling you know there's you know if I'm oh you know, I've got to go and do these library talks soon. I've got maybe ten library talks all across the Sunshine Coast. And I, I take in plants from my garden. I fill up the table in front of me with all these plants. And people come in and say, oh, my gosh, this library smells amazing. Like there's this, and it's this sense of the plants. And it, and it's, and they, they presence themselves right away just from that. And, and I also really value the color and the texture and the visual beauty that they bring into the garden that really makes me feel so whole and happy happy you know and I've got to the sense too because a lot of these plants are perennial plants and yeah. they're they've filled in their little niches in the garden and they're very low maintenance and they're very productive and I can take snips off them and hand them out as much as I like and they're that's actually helping to make them look even better um that in a way too that you know they're attracting a lot of beneficial insects into the garden they're a really important part of the whole system of my my food gardening that I don't know I've ended up coming to see this myself as really the garden gardening and in a way the herbs and the plants are gardening me like going okay well you need to do this now and I just watch and notice rather than controlling it I'm in relationship with the garden and there's something in me that once I realize that like a sense of wholeness and a sense of groundedness and a sense of, of peace in that, that it's not like a stress, I have to go out and garden now, I've got to go and do these things. It's more like, oh, I'll go out to the garden and, and just enjoy being there. And while I'm there, I might end up actually doing something in the garden because I, I just notice that that needs doing. And it's a different relationship when when you get to that. And I'm also really exploring, I don't know, I, I, I'm finding that I'm lacking the words in English to describe the feelings or the essence of of this relationship i started asking i've just come back from a from a speaking tour in um in the uk 
and I was asking this question, like, what is what is the word for that feeling when you feel deeply connected to a, a garden and a place? And it's not just biophilia where you feel a sense of connection with nature, but you understand and you know, you know, where your food's coming from and where your medicines are and which bits you can harvest for, um, you know, for maybe some, you know, you can coppers to use as fuel. Like you're nourished and you're supported by this whole system and that it's, it's your it's your habitat but when i say habitat it feels very scientific it doesn't it loses some of the spirit and the essence of it and and someone said oh there's this word in welsh called kneven and so i looked at it and i thought yeah that's getting pretty close and then i and then i started looking into other um languages that are more traditional or indigenous languages and went oh they're there that's where those words are we don't have those languages in the modern english maybe in old english there might have been something, but our relationship with nature and the production of gardening and production of plants, all that kind of will garden something or it's a doing to something rather than a being with something. And that relationality, I'm really keen on exploring what what that looks like, what that means and how we can describe it without using so many words like I just have now. Like, you just have a word, we know what we're talking about. Maybe there's not a word, but maybe there is. Anyway, I as I was looking into because I have a lot of kind of old Celtic. My, my middle name is Mackay, and I really feel part of like the, you know, the the Scottish um, tribes and all that sort of thing. And I, so I started looking into some old Scottish language, and I found this word as well. But as I was discovering that, I found this other word, and I I I don't speak it enough to be able to say it. Um, proudly and loudly on on podcasts but the meaning was the sound of the leaves rustling as a bird takes flight mm. how beautiful is that <laughs> so beautiful like where those words they're yeah. the words that i'm i want to rediscover so that i can describe a different way of being in a garden because i feel like part of this you know it's 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 the herbs and the plants and all of them, but it's in the relationality that you have in this whole sense of well-being, in the sort of the spirit of being in the garden. And I don't know if you come across any words or anything. I was asking a young um, Aboriginal guy the other day and uh, he thought for me, he said, yeah, yeah, we've got a word. It translates something like home. And my first reaction in my mind was like, nah, that's not it. <laughs> and then I went, oh, hang on a tick. I think it might be because in my mind, the first thing when I, when someone said home was house, you know, yeah. like we have this, like my house is my home. My home is my house and but no home, meaning like where we are really at home, mm-hmm. where we really feel we deeply belong, where we feel like we are nourished and supported in that whole sense. And I went, well, that just shows my limitation in, in that framing, you know, and the language frames how we think. And uh, yeah, I just, that's, that's what I'm exploring at the moment. I'm feeling really excited about this possibility of understanding differently by having the language to express it. Mm, I love that. It's so thought provoking. And, and as you were speaking all of that, I was thinking, yeah, maybe our Indigenous culture here in Australia, First Nations people always talk about belonging to country and their country and, um, yeah, it's really coming into that embodiment of the reciprocal relationship with nature and 
And somebody recently at a workshop at my place asked that question of how do you know what to do? Like, do you have a list of things, you know, their, their mind is very like analytical and step-by-step. And I said, yeah, I had some guides at the beginning, but really once you begin to be gardened by the, your gardening and it, that first principle of observe and interact is constantly happening and when people say the plants talk to me or speak to me, I, I, I get it now in the sense that I'll walk over and I'll go, hey, what's happening here? And I just, you know, go into a space of observation and the plant's like, please leave me. I'm going to seed. And it's like, okay, part of me is like, oh, you're a bit messy and you're falling over in my garden in my pathway. But I hear you and that's really important and I will leave you and save your seed. And then it just... I spend maybe 10 minutes walking around my garden and it's like, it's speaking to me. It's like, do this. And that needs to be mulched and prune me here. And it just, it's like, I, it's just then becoming that the other principle of creatively responding to change or coming in and taking that feedback and responding Mm -hmm. rather than going in and going, I'm doing this. It's like, okay, what do you actually need? (laughs) What needs to happen here? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, we can have a we can have a plan and design an idea, but it's when we come into that place of being truly in relationship that it becomes really easeful. Yeah. It becomes a peaceful way of gardening, and and it becomes, um, oh my god, you know, like it's that. I remember <laughs> I remember when Bill Morrison used to do that thing of like the you know the reclining gardener. You know, once you get it set up, you can recline and. Like it's not to say that there's not it's not a do nothing, but it's just a it's a just more of a noticing and a slowing down in it so that we 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 respond rather than go out and do. And I think that's yeah, it's it's really it's a really beautiful way to be in the garden. I I absolutely love it. I really do. Hey uh, this is a quick interlude. I trust you're enjoying the episode thus far. Did you know that the Elder Tree is a not-for-profit organization? We are empowering grassroots herbal education and earth skills to ensure holistic healthcare is accessible to everyone. Beyond this podcast, we have the Elder Tree Trove, which is our Patreon community. It's more than a membership. It is a space where our listeners become co-creators of our mission, which is to secure the future of herbal medicine in Australia with an education centre and healing sanctuary in far north Queensland of Australia. To be more involved, you could join us as a Patreon and become an integral part of our community. For just $2 or even $8 per month, you can stay connected with the herbalists, the healers and the permaculturalists we interview and access their special content and offers and their ongoing expertise, all for you to harvest. Now let's get back into the interview. Yeah. And it just comes, you can't, you can't teach that. It's like you can show people how to get to create and design it and to have inspiration and create a garden. But until you're in that space and the plants are there and you're working with it, you might get the sense and that inspiration and feel when you go into somebody else's garden and go, you know, my earlier days of learning permaculture, I just went out and explored all these community gardens and go to all these elders' houses. I just was so thirsty to see these demonstrations. And 
these places have a really special feeling and I want to create that. And then when I went in and, I, and I've done it in different gardens over the years, it's like, yeah, it's, it's only through the doing and then the being in that space that all of this information comes through and it's not written. It's not written information. Yeah. It's that, oh, I read about that time, but now I actually feel it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's time, you know, that's the biggest ingredient. Often we're too busy to get to a certain point, whereas it's just taking the time and noticing and remembering and being in conversation and being in conversation with other people, but being in conversation, like you said, with your garden. And it, you, you don't have to speak out loud and you don't even, if, you, if it doesn't make sense for you to talk about it in, in words, it's just, you know, it is just, it's noticing and it's responding and I do that too with even the, um, you know, the vegetable side of things too. I notice, oh, look at that. There's little mustard greens that are starting to self-seed up there. Oh, it's brassica time. So, it may, you know, I read the landscape. I read the garden. The garden is saying now it's a good time to start putting in things that are of this family because the temperature is right, the conditions are right, the soil moisture is right. Okay, so I'll start doing that. Or if I see little tomatoes popping up, oh, it's a good time to get those things in. And I think here particularly, like we're in a warmer environment and that works really, really well. You know, I guess you're if you're in from a much cooler climate, you know, by the time things self-seed in your garden, you probably would want to have done it before. But I think we can really shift and change how we garden and respond um in these warmer climates and be far more interactive in that way because a chart particularly as the climate is changing mm. a chart doesn't tell you like it might tell you something generic but what is your particular place in your particular on on your country mm. what that's saying what is that saying and i i really really yeah you're right when you say you know it's like oh yes that's what that's what they were saying and and it's there's these new layers of understanding that you sort of keep peeling off these layers and you get deeper and deeper into it and then there's these aha moments that happen all the time which which I absolutely love (laughs) it's just beautiful and I find that I find that really grounding and healing and calming you know like the Mm. deepening of that relationship with the place in which I am but also noticing that as I because I'm grounded in place here Mm -hmm recognizing that it's only 25 30 years that I've been here that's not very long in the history of indigenous cultures in this place but I feel like I'm starting to get a sense of what it means to be really in relationship with place that as I enter into that here I notice when I land somewhere else I'm also interacting differently Mm. and and I think that's that is a really I'm, I'm noticing that more and more now too and being really aware of what what plants are just finding their way, you know. And I read the plants mostly. The plants is the plants are the sort of the the language of a landscape. Yeah, you know, they tell you what's going on underneath. They tell you what's going on with the wind. They tell you what's going on with the nutrients in the soil. They they tell you what is the the natural um, ecology of the place. And you by able to be in relationship with the plants and noticing them first then you know and what kind of foods are emerging just unfolding in that place it it helps you to to find a way to connect and i i think i think that's you know 
it shifts how you enter into a place. Mm. You become far more respectful and, well, I don't know who's respectful, but you come just a lot more, you enter more quietly <laughs> into a place rather than barrage on all in and think, right, I've got these great ideas and I can really help to change and shift that. And I find it hard actually these days to do consulting because the ex- expectation is you're going to come in and tell someone how to do something yeah, like that. Whereas the conversation that needs to happen before you make any observations and the observations that you need to do before you even tell anyone what observations you're making, I think is a really important thing. So it's, again, it's this sort of time. So I really enjoy engaging with a group in in a dialogue about place yeah. or to host conversations just like to talk about how you see or how you design yourself over a period of time. And that's why you know, teaching design or teaching education about how to design is where I now pay attention. It's like, how do you put on that lens? Yeah. What does that lens look like? What are the things to notice rather than going in and going, oh, well, this is what I want to tell you what to do because how you relate to your land and how I relate to your land is something quite different. Like I could give you a couple of ideas, but... In actual fact, the ideas that you come up with in relationship to your place and your family and your history and all the things that you bring with you, all your roots and your deep well of knowledge and experience that finds its relationship with that place. That's a different thing. And I, so I, it's a, a really interesting dynamic that I find myself in quite often. It is. And it's, I guess it's coming back to that, you know, because people have the time, you know, like you're in you're observing over a period of time too. And that's where I got to as well with consulting and designing. We'd, you know, create these beautiful gardens and, you know, people of wealth were able to afford them. But then I was coming back and I was still buying greens from the shop and they weren't eating from their garden. And it's like they didn't, they weren't part of the process and they weren't connected to the garden. And so that's why I'm with you. It's like, Let's just educate people how to be the designers rather than be the designer for them. Yeah. It's yeah. And and you can you can mentor along the way yeah. and and you know walk with them in conversation through a place. But yeah, that's that's definitely where I've come to. And yeah. How to ask the questions or how to find that mindset or how to see something, how to be in relationship and um yeah, I find that super exciting. And also to go into, still, I love going to other people's gardens. I've just, like I said, I've just been to um, over to the UK and I'm in the process of editing a whole lot of new YouTubes with like videos of different people's places and what they love, what they see, what they notice, so that people tell the stories about their observations and how they've responded to that particular situation. And you might, you know, if someone's watching the video, there might be one or two points that they get out of that film, one or two points they get out. And it's just this harvesting of different ideas and insights that open up our our, our thinking in, in uh, how we might approach our own spaces. And and that, yeah, I, that opportunity to go and visit different people in different places is always something that I love to take up. Yeah. <laughs> it's my ho- favourite holiday, going and looking at people's gardens and landscapes. <laughs> But I see like your education, you know, you do a lot of one-on-one and group work, but you use film a lot. And so you have your YouTube channel, but you also 
I can't remember the name of the film, but you created a documentary. Didn't you produce a, a documentary a little while ago? Oh, and only a little short piece. Think that was Global, very... Eat Local, A Diet for a Sustainable Society. Was that back yeah. a while ago? You've done that heaps was, more that since was then. My first, that was my first foray into film, okay. I have to say. And I got a I got a grad from Maloney Film Society uh, to do that one. And I so I interviewed a number of different people and I brought in it, the focus was looking at what's going on in this particular region because it was from the Mulaney Film yeah. Society. It was like what's happening in the local food sector, but then I took it out into what's going on in the global food system, interviewed some professors and, and uh, scientists and ecologists and really trying to bring in this broad perspective. And I look at it now and it's still as current today, the issues, um, sadly, in a way, mm. you know, um, so that yeah, think global, eat local uh, is the name of that, and you can find it on 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 YouTube. It's there and it's available. And you know, the reason I made it was I thought that it could be something. It was a short snip, a fifteen minute snip that you could drop into a class. You could drop it into a permaculture class. You could drop it into a a school class. You could drop it into maybe something that people might be able to use. Um, even in local government, if they're wanting to talk about the issues of why should we have a local food policy, for example. And that was really my imperative of making it. It did. I was learning how to do filmmaking then. And if I looked back at it again, technically, I don't know whether I'd be super impressed with it, but what I, it took me so long to make. And then my brother went out and did um, a filmmaking course and uh, he actually did a degree in, in filmmaking. So I, I asked him to show me how can I film and make um how can I film and edit and release a film in a day? And that was my challenge. And so that is what I've done ever since with the YouTube channel. So when I go on a film, I, you know, I film and I edit and I can upload in a short period of time. And that is how I've been able to create so many YouTube. So I think the point with that is that rather than getting too fussed about fancy editing, it's focus on, on the content and design it and try and do as much editing in camera as possible rather than rely on taking a whole lot of footage and having to spend all this time going through it to really be quite precise in the planning stage. So I plan it out, then I do the video, and then I just need a little bit of editing and then upload it onto YouTube. And, you know, I think there is so much knowledge in, in the permaculture community that is so incredibly valuable if we could share that out more you know my one another course that I run now is called share permaculture and the point of that is to to try and encourage other people to get their permaculture knowledge onto podcasts onto YouTube to run live events to write articles to create documents in websites like how can we get this knowledge that's embedded in our communities that's incredible knowledge out into the world and uh, so I think YouTube is one of those simple things that we can use. People are very accommodating of film quality that is obviously coming from a phone, you know, and everyone pretty much these days has a phone that has a video quality that's good enough as long as we get reasonable sound and you, all you need is a little lapel mic or if you're close enough, the, the microphone on the, on the cameras is fantastic these days. And then you use free editing software that if you're using an Apple Macintosh, it's right there, free editing. And you, you can create films so super easily. And I think that 
sharing that, you know, whether it be walking through your garden and telling the story about, you know, this herb that's growing really well in your garden and how you use it and what's going on with it and putting that up. And then the next week you might see another herb that's, as you're walking through the garden, that's really flourishing. Oh, I'll just make one about that today and put it up. And so that that, that knowledge and those ideas gets shared as much as, as possible. Uh, so, so, yeah, the first documentary took me a while, but ever since then I've realised that the more that we can get the content out and share it, the more regularly that we share it, um, then, yeah, it's just, it's a wonderful world mm-hmm. of of permaculture community knowledge building and sharing that um, that we can tap into. Mm. Well, you've really inspired me in that because that's a huge block for me is the, so I'm just hearing that you do all of that in a day. I, yeah, I need to do that sharing permaculture course with me because <laughs> I do need someone to mentor me on that side of things. Um, You know, this podcast has been a step in that direction. And But I've made so many videos in my garden and I've never actually published them because I <laughs> freak out and it's like the amount of editing time. So that's mm-hmm. a really good challenge and maybe letting go of the perfectionism and getting out of my way and just getting that information out there is ideal. Yep. Yeah, you know, I think, oh, gosh, you know, it's making me think that, well, maybe we need to have sort of a bit of a, a permaculture YouTubing community of practice or something that means that we can, those people who really want to do it, we can, you know, support and mentor one another because it's, I think it's really important. There's so much knowledge that this, the the really beautiful knowledge that you only get when you're talking to people. Mm-hmm. It's not the stuff that you read in books. Mm-hmm. And when someone gets on a video and they feel comfortable enough, they start sharing a story about it or some history of it or a dimension of it that you just don't get when you sit down and write in a book. It's a different way of communicating. Yeah. Something else comes. You know, when, you, when you're out in the garden, you know, I don't know, like, like you said, I started Northeast Street City Farm and it was one of the best things, like actually just just being beside someone and gardening and then the stories would start to come it's like oh I didn't know that about this plant and and, you know the things you would discover and just in conversation and uh and I've tried often to find where I can get that information and it's like a little snip here and a little snip there so that's why I've sort of tried on my YouTube and it's like just go plant by plant by plant um just to talk about you know those sorts of things and I and that way it's also very searchable. So someone can go, you know, um, you know additional benefits of turmeric and yeah. up it comes, you know, and then you just pick one, one, one. and Because you've got to think about how someone might search a YouTube. Yeah. Uh, you think about how you search YouTube. You might ask, oh, what are the medicinal benefits of comfrey, for example? And you're looking for something specific. It's a how-to or a what or it's like a question about something. And so really just diving into that and answering a question. And then, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll sign up to that masterclass. Oh, yeah, great. Oh, good. (laughs) Just add that to your busy schedule of everything that you're doing. Um, Cool. Well, I know you've talked about, you know, your beautiful herbal garden, your back door, and then the rest of them that are spread throughout your garden, Um, the lemon myrtle. Is there, like... I know it's a really hard question for all permaculturalists, but is there a favorite plant that you recommend as a must-have to include in, in somebody's home garden? And if so, why? And obviously, you're in a subtropical area, so you're not going to be—you don't have that 
maybe plants people have in arid or temperate climates but what would you recommend or what what do you find putting in and um suggesting to people when you're doing consultations well i'm gonna have to default to comfrey yeah (laughs) it's the super plant (laughs) one reason um firstly because because of its capacity to grow in so many different areas is why I've picked it. Because like I said, I've just come back from Wales and, and England and it's just growing all over the place. Um, you know, I see it here in the subtropics. I see it in Melbourne. I see it all over. So comfrey is a plant which I find an amazing plant that can help us to create such great biomass really quickly. So if you start with an empty paddock and you can plant you know, a section of comfrey, you will get massive biomass, which you can be collecting that, putting it in your compost, activating your compost, feeding to your chickens, um, you know, using it as a chop and drop mulch, putting it into your no-dig gardens. So as a step back from, you know, like it's not necessarily the sort of the main herb that you might be using in your, you know, herbalism, but it's a plant which is tending to the soil. It's tending to your whole system and it helps to activate that also because it's drawing it's got those deep roots that push their way down and help to you know wriggle their way in and open up the soil and as their roots biodegrade they're kind of feeding the soil and opening up channels for water and and creating activity for life to get going in the soil as the leaves are shading out they'll sort of create habitat for other little things and then the the flowers create beautiful habitat for the for the bees to come in and because they're so broadleaf, they sort of help to create a bit of a, a a weed barrier around the edge of your garden. So, you know, for all of those reasons, and then, um, you know, to make comfrey lotions from them and uh, comfrey salves and even like a comfrey leaf-infused oil um, for skin and, and for healing, all of those things I really appreciate comfrey as and it's so easy to propagate as well. All you need is a little snip of the root, um, pop that in and you you get a whole new plant going on. And I've even encouraged people on balconies to use comfrey. So you can grab a comfrey root, pop it in a pot, and you'll have a whole new comfrey plant, which then you can use to create your own mulch. You might even want to create some liquid fertilizer in your on your veranda, which you can then feed your plant. So you get this kind of cycle going on. Um, you could add it into your worm farm or your compost, even on your balcony. So it helps to get that that circularity going right there. So, so comfrey is definitely one for all those reasons and and possibly many more that I haven't mentioned. Yeah, yeah, I really love it for that too because fertility is like the basis. It's so important, and that's one of those things that you know, like it's it's one of those outputs that people often bring into their system, and it comes in plastic and. You know, the more that we can, we there's just so much waste that can create so much fertility on our sites that if people just tweak that little aspect about their lifestyle with just learning the skills, it's so basic, it completely changes everything. And, um, yeah, comfrey, I get you. It's just like we can't move past it. It's come up so many times in these, and I, I sort of just—I bet you, I'm sure it has. And I, I was sort of hesitant to say it because I thought, oh, everyone's going to say comfrey. But it's good <laughs> because then the listeners are like, yes, there is really something. It's a pattern that keeps emerging. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, as one that, 
as one that helps to activate the site, I think it's really important, you know, getting things started, but then also nourishing. It's a nourishing plant for your garden. It, I plant it around the edge of my fruit trees as well because around the drip line and it and it sort of it's sort of self-mulching there and it's helping to feed the you know the feeder roots of the plants and and I plant it around the edges of the garden and, and mulch up to it so it's holding mulch so it has many functional elements as well as tending to to our health and well-being and the health and well-being of the soil so I think it and you know if you start to look at most plants through this lens I think you know from a, from a permaculture perspective there's been so much focus on comfrey and describing all these multiple benefits. I think if we look at most plants though as well, mm. we could do a similar thing. And I really, if you take the pattern of how you describe, how we just described comfrey there, and we use that pattern of describing many other plants, you know, for example, I'm just out outside here, I have a, a mulberry plant. And I could have said just as many things about the mulberry plant as what I said about the comfrey plant you know, the way that I've used it to create living fences, the way that I use it to shade the chickens in the in the summertime, the way that I use chop and drop leafy matter, the way that the kids have had experience, science experiments with silkworms, the way that we eat the fruit and the way that um, one thing that I realised more recently is that every summer, as the summer is coming on, it is the landing pad for the migratory cruels that come into my garden. And they come back every year. They have for over a decade come back to this one particular tree. And it's helped to make me really realize that, okay, well, I planted the tree and I did it for all these functions and uses. And you, But it's actually not my tree anymore. Mm. It's, it's, I realize that it's our tree. And everything that we do in our gardens becomes an hour. It becomes like it's, it's our garden, yeah. not my garden. And that if I now start to want to do anything, do anything in my garden, I often step back and think, well, how will this action impact the other species for which this is home too? And if I decided I would chop down that mulberry tree, then I would be affecting the migratory patterns of this particular bird that's decided that that's its home in, you know, from October onwards. And this expanded awareness of place when we start to think of all of the different ways that the ecosystem interacts, um, it really lands us in that place of we are the garden gardening, we are the ecosystem systeming. <laughs> and, you know, even with the comfrey, once we start to put that into the system, it creates all this other lifing that's going on under the soil that we don't even really know about that's enhanced by that being there. So I think if we can see ourselves as really you know, beneficial actors in this system and, and really value our role as helping to enliven spaces through our interaction. And it's not just about what we can get from a garden for ourselves and for our well-being, but how we can be the well-being of the system and that through that relationship we are, in fact, become becoming more well ourselves in, in the whole sense of the word. Mm. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to do. It just reminds me, it's like the, you know, we have a, as part of my online course, it's like we're creating our book of kin. Each family is creating their book of kin and that the purpose or the intention behind that is that, you know, that everyone kind of gets into permaculture because they want to obtain a yield. They want to be able to 
grow wellness in their gardens and provide for their own needs and be sustainable, which is a really beautiful entry point and motivation. But everything you just spoke of, you know, like that's the, um, those are all the gifts and that relationship and, and thinking like ecology or that permaculture mindset is what forms when you start seeing, oh, okay, well, I'm, I, I just wanted mulberries in some shade. And now it's like you, because you have that relationship, you're seeing so much more of the system. And I, I've been saddened over the years to see, you know, I, initially I worked in real estate and I found myself actually being more attracted to the gardens. <laughs> but I would see, you know, these properties where people, you know, there's 20, 30-year-old fruit trees there and then the new person would come in buy the property and just cut down perfectly good producing mango trees or even a, a, a citrus because they didn't know what it was. And it's like, how can somebody not even know what a mandarin tree is? And then, and then they go into the shops to buy mandarins and they had this, you know, this legacy that was left there. And I think, you know, everything that you speak of, it's like when we move on from a place to be able to pass on those stories and not just go, oh, yeah, there's a mulberry tree. But my kids had a cubby house in here and we did silkworms and all of the these birds come in at this time of year and we've documented the cycle and to be able to share the stories of the land. And that comes, you know, and I think keep, you know, it's like a big theme right now. I'm really feeling into Australian Indigenous people um, and, you know, that conversation about belonging to country and, you know, all of their stories and their totems and connection to the animals. It's like I'm starting to feel, oh, like this culture really makes sense to me. <laughs> Even though I'm like a white person with a bits of background, I've got so many different lineages, but I've grown up with, with like, like searching for culture and I think that's why permaculture and, and understanding ecology in my place in the world and, and what you're teaching, it just makes so much sense. It gives purpose. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, the more that, the same here, the more that I deepen my relationship with place and my through my through my garden, through the habitat that I find myself within, I'm also finding that I understand more deeply the stories and the dreaming and the Indigenous culture that's around. And, and in talking with elders too and saying, you know, asking the question was like, well, you know, how, how do I relate? You know, I'm not, I'm not from here and I feel like I'm going to blow in and, you know, all of those sorts of awkward questions that we kind of sit with. And so well, where, where were you born? I said, oh, I was born in in um, in Mitcham, in in near Ringwood in Melbourne. He says, oh, that's your country. That's where you're from. And and um, but you know the fact that you know you you are here now in this place, and if this is where is home for you, then you know be in relationship, act respectfully, mm. be a steward of the land. Mm. This is the gift that you have to be in this place and how you react and respond and be part of it and, and help to, one, either regenerate it, restore it and um, t tell stories and be part of restoring the landscape is really important mm. and that that's part of us actually being in better relationship with Indigenous communities and with our country 
than if we just go, oh, we're not from here and we can't really relate, so we won't, and we'll just kind of like be in a consumer relationship and a doer relationship. I think actually part of the healing and and this way of finding our way forward mm. is deepening into this as part of that reconciliation process, I think, really importantly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, my dreaming is to... Um to go where I'm invited. I know that's something that you speak of a lot and um, I look forward to the invitation to be able to take my um, my little bit of knowledge of permaculture and to go in and to learn from communities about what they're doing there and find that bridge and help in whatever ways that I can. I look forward to that day. Um, but let's move on because we covered so much we're already an hour in and it's just passed oh no so quickly. Really already oh my gosh. Oh. um so have, has there been an experience or a situation in your life where you know your health maybe went to, you, you needed to rely on herbs uh, specific plants for your health and could you share a little bit about how you've utilized things from your garden to improve your health I have an ongoing thing with with breathing I was grow like as I grew up I often had asthmatic bronchitis I think it's something that's come like it's a generational thing and um and I get triggered quite a lot by it could be smoke or it could be perfumes or something else which is why I really like living out you know out here away from chemical smells and all that kind of thing but so sometimes I do get triggered with that. And so I find myself going out into the garden and I will make up a wicked brew of all kinds of things that I know are really good for, for lung health and for helping with decongestion. And so it's never just one thing. And I think this is really also important that I've noticed too. There's never never just a go-to one plant. Um, same with there's not just a go-to one salad plant or there's not just a go-to one fruit plant like it's a, a fruit salad or it's a or a mixed green salad or you know if I'm making spanakopita I'll have like 20 different greens that are in the in that mix and it's the same with with the herbs I find myself reaching out for you know the go-to plants that I would put into that mix are often things like um, you know like the lemon lemon myrtle lemongrass gingers turmerics um, yarrow and I'll put that all into a nice blend and then I'll be sipping that throughout the day and having that as my as my drink and maybe with a bit of if I've got a sore throat obviously I'll add in a bit of honey in there as well or um, depending what citrus is on at the time I'll also squeeze in maybe it might be some lemon or some lime or um, if it's if it's a time I got some Buddha's hand going on, I might sort of chop up some of the, you know, the fingers of the the Buddha's hand, that ancient citrus that doesn't have any juice in it, but it's all just pith and fingers. And and I that I learned um, from a, a Chinese woman. She was saying, well, in China, what we do is we chop up the the fingers and and uh, turn them into like a we can they either candy them and they have them as lozenges or they. Or they just, um, yeah, dry them and put them into tea as something that helps with, you know, with decongestion as well. So, and sore throat. So all of those things in together, whatever's seasonal as well. And I think that's really important. It's not like, okay, well, I have this ailment. So I notice that there's this plant, I'll get it and I'll dry it and I'll keep it on a shelf because my, 
I don't know this for sure, but my sense, my intuition is that if I get it fresh from the garden and it's seasonal at that time and it just comes straight from the garden to me, it's going to be more potent and address. And, and I'm drawn to the things that I think, oh, a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of that and it, and it goes in together. So the things which help me to, to stay breathing clearly are the things which I really, really value and I, and I use quite regularly. And I think also part of the lemon myrtle too is that, that as I go out in the day and I'm going out into places where I know there's other smells that might set me off, there's that, that clear and easy breathing, that calmness that comes over you when you smell, that happy, calm feeling that you get when you smell lemon myrtle. It's like, oh, you know, like you can't stop but do that. And I, I used to think it, it made me remind me of, um, I know, as a kid, I used to have that lemon sherbet stuff. Like I was like, I, I grew up in a house where we had no sugar, no salt, no tea, no coffee. No, there was none of that. And so every now and then you'd go to the shops and get lemon sherbet. It was like a treat. And there's something about lemon myrtle that makes me remember that. But I don't actually think it's that anymore. I think it is actually that the lemon myrtle is such this beautiful, vibrant scent and flavour that it has, has its own uplifting feeling in and all of itself. Yeah. And it seems like very intuitive, like as you were sharing that, I'm, I'm seeing this beautiful visual of you walking through your garden and picking it all up and in your kitchen and brewing it away. And I, I think, you know, this is, it's an intuitive process, but also, you know, with the seasonality, there's no packaging, there's no reliance on a system outside of yourself. It's like the, you have your, you're sovereign in your healing right there. And and I guess like just doing that regularly is a preventative thing. It's not actually getting to a point where you're sick. It's Yeah. Yeah. I very rarely find myself sick mm. because if I, if I feel a little bit, maybe like I'm getting a little bit overwhelmed, like I do a lot of stuff yeah. and sometimes I can feel my nervous system just getting a little bit ragged on the edges I'll just go for a walk down the river or go out into the garden. And so that just to take a breath and calm down, or if I feel a slight tingle of something, I'll just go straight out in the garden and get onto it straight away. And so it's that way of just being in tune yeah. with my body and being in relationship with the place and my garden that helps me to stay in that sense of wellness. I mean, every now and then, yes, I do yeah. get something comes on, but typically it's really about that being constantly in the state of trying to be in wellness yeah and that's and rather than go 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 oh sick right and I used to do that a lot I think when I was when I was younger I would I would go 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 crash <laughs> and, late. I, and my, my mum just said here we go again and she just said this is such a pattern of yours she saw it she saw straight through me I went yeah you're right mum I was like I actually need to be a little bit more mindful that I'm not superhuman. I actually do need to pace myself a little bit more and I can I can still do all the things I want to do, but just in a in a more easeful pace that is nourishing for me and also means that I'm I don't crash and then no not used to me or anybody else, my family included. Yeah. We've got to be on it with the children. Hey, it's just not, it's not just us anymore. It's like all of your students and you've got all these responsibilities. So maintaining our health and yeah, it's yeah. so much easier to do when we've got it all in our garden. I know, I know. And I feel 
totally, totally blessed that I can have it just straight out my door. Mm. You know, when I lived in the city and I was renting, uh, I, I actually made sure that I moved to a place that was just up the road from where we created the, the city farm. So even though I didn't have a garden of my own, I could go to that garden, I could hop on my bike and roll down and within like, I don't know, 30 seconds I was at the garden and it was really my back door. And so trying to find a way to be surrounded, find a way that I could be surrounded by that um, quite as quickly as I could possibly be. But even then, you know, sometimes I've lived in really highly dense spaces and, and just trying to grow something even on a windowsill or on the veranda so that there's some sense of connection, and, you know, even as simply as doing, you know, sprouting in your in your cupboard, yeah. <laughs> you know, that you've actually got something that's alive yes. that you're tending and caring for that's part of your well-being really makes a huge difference, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point about community gardens or even friends with gardens or your neighbours. You know, there's if we if you don't have the space or you're renting, there's always these other options of engaging and providing for your needs. All right, well, mm. I'm really excited about this final question, which is what is alive and thriving in your life right now? Gosh, what is alive and thriving in my... Well, my garden is thriving <laughs> all in of itself and that's really beautiful. I have... I have a I have two beautiful homeschooling boys who are um, alive and thriving and keeping me absolutely busy in my in my daily life and um, and wrapped around all of that I run the Permaculture Education Institute and so this for me is my main well my all of my work basically it's it's what I dedicate my time to is working with people on six continents teaching permaculture teachers and making sure that there's accessibility to to young people in refugee communities and just really trying to find as many different ways as possible to share permaculture and not just in a way that it's about doing it in your backyard but it's actually recognizing that we there's a lot going on in the world right now and how how are we to live how are we to respond to these multiple crises that we're facing? How are we to even begin to feel like we can have agency to impact that? And it's really about how we can find the most sort of, low, and it does come back to our home, to our communities and the way that we ripple out from there, from that place of strength and groundedness. And so teaching permaculture is far more powerful, I think, than I could ever possibly imagine before. And I've shifted the the way that I imagine how change happens. Because often we think like change happens like, I'm, you know, I'm showing like this pyramid shape. So, you know, like often the, you know, we think that the power is at the top. and But, you know, if you knock off the top, someone else will just come up and you, it's just the same old, same old. Where the power really lies for change is actually through, when we use like a, a natural metaphor, through this myceliation. So if we tend to the soil, we tend to this community of practice, it's like, just imagine like anywhere you go in the world and I've had the the pleasure of visiting many different communities around the world you don't have to scratch very far in the surface and you'll find people who are doing this you'll find people that are either doing permaculture or something that looks like permaculture and making a difference where they are in their communities in their families at their schools at their community centers and really helping people to live well to meet their needs to address issues that they're facing locally with agency and uh and so basically what my focus is, is to 
to help to compost those. Like by that, I mean apply compost so that the myceliation can go further and faster and really get much stronger because this interconnected web of relationship that's going on in this unseen world, like in the soil, is actually where the power for change lies. Mm. And every now and then we'll see evidence of it by things, you know, like you see evidence of the mycelial network by mushrooms popping up, you know, and you go, oh, yeah, it's alive. There it is. I see it now because, I, you know, like it's on the ground and it's connecting all the different trees and plants and, and helping to nourish them and each other. And then the, you see them. And so it's like where you see it, like tend to that, like apply more compost, shine a spotlight on it, uplift it, um, you know, add more context to that to help it to really thrive. And then as that mushroom matures and spores, it's in billions of spores out into the world which land. And if they land on sort of fertile soil, so more compost, more compost, more compost, then we'll get more of that happening. And so really that's kind of the way that I see the possibilities that permaculture educators can have is by tending to that mycelial network and supporting the spread of that community, people-to-people care, the earth care, the people care and the fair share. And not only does it feel like I'm not just exhausting myself from fighting, it actually feels like I'm growing a community. I'm growing the sense of love and care and through a gentle way, and that to me feels like a really nourishing way to live. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I listened into something you said a little while ago about, um, you know, in your activism's time, you know, and I, I was the same. It was like, no, no to this, no to that. And just this energy of fight and it's coming into permaculture. It's, this is solutions based. This is positive. Mm-hmm. And a friend said to me the other day, I feel hopeless and it's just like I felt that too but then I found permaculture (laughs) and it's you know it's non-dogmatic but it's these values and ethics that really make so much sense and with that lens and with the types of people that are coming and sharing it's this beautiful network and you've connected it globally And you're working with teenagers as well, you know, like that younger group. And I see on your course for people who are studying your design certificate, you also invite children, so support like homeschoolers, so children can do it as well. You know, thank you for for this work. And it really, you know, inspires me in the way that I want to be able to run my business and do my education as well. So, um, yeah, thank you for for all of your sharing today and um, for the work that you do in the world. And and the placemaking podcast is something that I listen to quite often, placemaking in this changing world. Sense making in a changing world. In a changing world. Sorry, yeah. I got that wrong. Um, I will put the link there so people can connect to that yeah. because you know the six o'clock news really shares a whole lot of fear. And these, you know, how you said you're shining the light. It's like there is so much going on, and we can tune into that frequency. We can tune into these good stories and this information, and it propels yeah. us. It gives us hope, and we just keep. We can grow. We can grow with that light. How can you grow? You just want to contract when you're constantly bombarded yeah. with fear. And I think, you know, that your friend that you said was feeling feeling hopeless. And I think once you start to connect with people who, who, and you start, they start to talk about things, you're like, oh, yes, I feel like that. Yes, 
and and you start to find a a group of people that get you and who understand and 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 have that possibility. There was, and I wanted to just say there was this. Um, I, when I was away, I went to this amazing um, conversation around about different ways of education. And I've always talked about, you know, permaculture education is really about head, heart, and hands. You know, it's like all our ideas. It's really bringing our heart to the table. It's not just our head, but also it's very practical. But they added in another one, and I really like it. So a fourth H. So it's head, heart, hands, and hope. Um, yes. I thought beautiful. Yes, we we do. We we need to have that sense of hope and possibility yeah. that there are other ways forward. And this is the big question that I always hold in my heart: is like, how are we to live? You know, in order to create this hopeful, positive future. And 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 I really do think that hope, just tossing that into the fourth H, is a really lovely way to go. Oh. Yes, I'm going to weave that in now too. And I think that's a really beautiful way to finish our interview today. Thank you so much for your time. I can't wait until everyone can listen to this. And um, yeah, we'll stay connected and share all of those links and all of your good work. So everyone listening can just click on those and, you know, explore the world of more and connect to what wonderful things you're doing. And thank you, Tonya, for all the things that you do for this podcast, but also for all the amazing things that you do with, with the children's programs. It's just absolutely fantastic. And, and I share that with as many people as I possibly can find because I think it's absolutely fantastic. Oh, I appreciate that. So much coming from you. All right, we'll say goodbye today. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it now with someone you know will benefit from this information. And remember, we're not just talking about change, we are cultivating it through these conversations and through the Elder Tree Patreon community. Together, we are sowing the seeds for an education center and healing sanctuary. You can unlock access to our treasure trove of wisdom via our Patreon. So you can do that in the show notes below or from our website. Please subscribe now and leave us a review. It really helps the bots share our podcast with the world. And your support ensures that this podcast and our vision can thrive. To grow them is to know them. To know them is to use them. To use them is to love them. And then happily, herbs become your way of life. May you be blessed with good health and many plans.